Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you all on this Lord's Day morning. I would again direct your attention to 1 Kings chapter 20. We're going to begin at verse 30b, where we left off the last time I was here six weeks ago, which in most English translations begins a new paragraph. But by way of brief review, the Lord has most recently in this account demonstrated both his justice and his mercy in these two defeats of the Syrians. And he is, for his chosen people, as sinful as they are, the victor on their behalf in these battles. And we noted back on the 26th of September, for those of you who were here, you will recall that the Israelites, under the leadership of Ahab, as poor as that leadership is, and by the word of ostensibly multiple prophets, that is, three of them, the people of God were mustered and were provisioned. And you'll recall, and that may well be the axis upon which that portion of First Kings 20 actually turns. If we hear nothing else, perhaps we should most hear the fact that God is a God who musters and who provides for. These are, as I noted then, nifal, impassive verb forms, which basically convey a passive action that is ongoing. And when it is completed, the recipient realizes that that was something that God has done in order that they might be equipped to respond aright. And you'll recall also that I... I, paralleled this to, to faith, to saving faith, how it is that God requires of man faith, and yet he must be given that faith. And here we see in an ancient account of battle on the second time around there, but no different than the first, most assuredly, God gives what is necessary to obey his commands. He is the giver of faith. He is the one from whom faith comes, but he is also the one in whom faith is. And that theme continues today in the, to the end of our being able to see how it is that God maintains his justice, but he never does so precluding his mercy. And he is glad to show that stated mercy, but he only does so when the demands of his justice have been met. And, of course, we see that at the cross and as we continue in this drama, I suggest to you that we do, ultimately looking for the overarching theme that sinners might apprehend the mercy of God and repent and believe. That's the call that is upon each of us, wherever we may be in our lives this day, that we may understand what God intends for us to understand, that what he makes us capable of grasping unto saving faith and turning from our sins and following him and trusting in him and relying upon his promises. As I've studied this passage, the answer to the 87th question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism keeps resounding in my mind. What is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sin of his, uh, sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ 
but with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. It's interesting to note that the proof text on the matter of apprehending the mercy of God comes from Joel chapter 2, verse 13. Rend your heart and not your garments, the Lord says. To the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness. That's his Hesed love. And repenteth him of the evil. There's a divine sorriness on the part of God, like unto that previous to the Noahic administration of the covenant, where God expresses sorrow for having created man as he looks upon man and all of his evil. That is just how merciful God is. He says in the previous verse, Joel 2, verse 12, Yet even now return to me with all of your heart. This is the longing of the sovereign God, even as he is bringing about stated judgments for those who will reject his promises and forego his blessings. And so that is an appropriate stage, I believe, to set for this text. Now let's turn our attention to 1 Kings chapter 20, verses 30b through 43. Ben-Hadad also fled and entered an inner chamber in the city. Remember what happened. The Syrians, 100,000 of them have been defeated. Another 27,000 have died as they're trying to get out of Aphek and the city walls fall upon them. But Ben-Hadad manages in God's providence to get away, and he goes into this inner chamber in the city. And his servants said to him, Behold now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us put sackcloth around our waists and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So they tied sackcloth around their waists and put ropes on their heads and went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. And he said, Does he still live? He is my brother. Now the men were watching for a sign, and they quickly took it up from him and said, Yes, your brother Ben-Hadad. Then he said, Go and bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him, and he caused him to come up into the chariot And Ben-Hadad said to him, The cities that my father took from your father I will restore, and you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. And a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his fellow at the command of the Lord, Strike me, please. But the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, Because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. And as soon as he had departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. Then he found another man and struck him and wounded him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed, he cried to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle, And behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man, if by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. The king of Israel said to him, So shall judgment be, your judgment be, you yourself have decided it. 
Then he hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life, and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house, vexed and sullen, and came to Samaria. Would ask now that as we consider your word, that you would know our hearts and thoughts and intentions, and that you would judge us by them, and yet we would ask that you do so out of your mercy, out of your grace, as you apply truth to our hearts, and as we meet with you in your supper, we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Years ago, when I began my pastoral ministry right out of seminary, one of the things that I decided I was going to do was to ministering to people who were grappling with diseases, infirmities, illnesses of different kinds, uh, that I would try to follow with them in the process and, and learn about those ailments and diseases uh, so that I could better understand at least something of what they were going through. And my good friend George Wolfe, one of the deacons at the church I first served, who's now with the Lord, apparently felt privy to that being my intent at some point, and he gave me as a gift the first year I was at the church a Merck's manual. Some of you probably know what that is. It's about that thick. And it's basically an, an encyclopedia of diseases and ailments and degenerative conditions. And there's a page or two on everything known to man. You can read about it and you can learn about it. And it was helpful. And I can remember being in hospitals with people when they had just received news of cancer or heart disease and a long road ahead with that perhaps and listening to doctors talk about the diagnostics and what was happening inside of their bodies and the different options they had in the process of navigating what those options are and trying to make decisions. And I can remember those uh, being hard times because sometimes the Lord was pleased to heal and restore and sometimes He wasn't. And sometimes people were headed down the final journey of their lives. But whatever the outcome... Whatever happened as a result of those instances, there was always a common strain running through all of them, and that is this, that they never failed to feature both the effects and the ravages of the misery of sin, while also at the same time setting the stage for believers and non-believers alike to be brought face-to-face -face with their own mortality and the indisputable fact that we can have no other lot than to disregard God and come under His judgment, or to trust Him and obey Him and rest in His incomparable power to cause one to bypass death for life as we lay hold of the promises, as He lays before us opportunities to seize and to avail ourselves of the mercy that he is pleased to show. That's what we have here, I believe, in the balance of 1 Kings 20. We have in this unique section that is rather strange and interpretively cumbersome, 
the opportunity to see the binary composition of human outcomes yet again, the either-or of death or life, and the reality that one either comes into judgment through living by one's fleshliness or one comes into life by trusting in another's righteousness. You go the way of the flesh, the way of the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life that we just read a moment ago, and we're being fleshly anytime we're disregarding what God says about something. We are functioning out of the temporal. Or we go His way and we seek His righteousness as the one who rights all wrongs and veys upon all those who trust in Him exactly what they need to exercise saving faith as we've already seen and to continually come into the benefits that Jesus Christ has won. This is one of the reasons I have such a love for the Old Testament narratives is because they give us the opportunity, if we're willing to utilize it, to be focused upon God's salvation and how it is that those things of which we read in the past are not there merely to mark time or, or somehow biblical filler, but they showcase His salvation and the degree to which He longs to shed it abroad in the hearts of those who are His. And this, of course, is no exception. There are three principal emphases here in this passage, and they emerge under the stage-setting rubric of one king's plea for life and another king's stay of execution. There's the two-pronged introduction to this episode, if you will, by the one king, the one who has been defeated, the one who's looking for mercy and realizes that he's very blessed to even still be alive, coming and wanting to exercise what he can to avail himself of any mercy that the victor, at least humanly speaking, and in the world, might be willing to show. One king's plea for life, that's in verses 30b through 32a, and then the petitioned king's stay of execution or clemency that is shown in light of said request in verses 32b through 34. Ahab is now, at least he thinks, in a position of having the upper hand, and uh, Ben-Hadad's cronies divine that they should throw their king on the mercy of Ahab, and as they do so, I'm sure that perhaps even they on some level were surprised by the immediacy of the positive response, particularly as they hear this question in verse 32 and then the statement he makes after it in reference to Ben-Hadad, does he still live? Yes, we know that he does. He's in an inner city chamber. He is my brother. And Ben-Hadad's staff had only hoped for as much as a response when they came with their inquiry, they had been watching for a sign, verse 32 tells us, actually the beginning of verse 33, and they quickly took it up from him and said, they got what they'd come for when he said brother, and they are affirming of the statement that Ahab makes, and then go and retrieve Ben-Hadad, and here the king of Syria, whom just around a year earlier had plotted to take Samaria, is up in the chariot on a political joyride with the one he wanted to overtake. Now the word brother here is a reference to a relationship that he is establishing with Ben-Hadad, that is Ahab, via a treaty. 
Ben-Hadad commits to cross-border marketplaces. That's what this really means. I love the ESV translation. You may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus. I remember my mother used to love bazaars. That was a term we used to hear a lot back in the 80s. Uh, that's a good word to capture cross-border marketplaces where people in their creativity and their uh, art and craftiness can make things and come and sell them and engage in commerce and everything. Let's go back to the way it was between our fathers. And Ahab is glad to have that. And so there is the conclusion of the deal. Ahab says, I will let you go on the terms. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. The word for covenant that we know, berit, is found in both of those places in verse 34b. I will let you go via this covenant. So he made a covenant with him. That is, these are the terms of their deal. And with this, we see a model of the suzerain vassal treaty, as you know, ultimately depicts God's relationship with his people covenantally. Ahab would be the suzerain here. He's the one who has won. He's the victor. And he's making a covenant with the one who needs his mercy. He's being kind to the one who has nowhere else to go but to him to cut such a deal. And there we have a picture of our need before the sovereign God. But the catch is, in this context, this was not a good deal, a bad deal, for the predictions and the prophecies of God through his spokesman that he was going to bring judgment upon Ahab ultimately into his house. And yea, even unto all the people because of his disobedience. So there are bad covenants. There are deals that are made with the devil that are not honoring to God, that do not lead us to the engagement of our neighbor on good terms. But rather, as you know, ultimately there will be exploitation here. Now, all of this to set the scene and then to move into the three lessons that we have as we examine the actions of the Lord. The first of the main points that we come to in the text in verses 35 through 37 is what I'm calling the importance of what God says. Isn't this interesting? I mean, this is so eccentric textually to us. It would fit into something that Hollywood might make today. We, we love the weird. We're, we're enamored with the strange. We find ourselves drawn to these things that are dark and we can't make sense of them. Another prophet comes onto the scene here, and the language conveys that he is one out of what we might uh, call a guild of prophets. You notice that in a certain man of the sons of the prophets, there were prophetic organizations back in that day. Much like we would think, for example, maybe of the Gideons today. They have stated purposes of evangelizing, passing out of, of Bibles in various places. And this was the case with the prophets in, in those days. There were these groups, and they were most likely headed up by Elijah and Elisha. They functioned, as the Lord called them out to various and sundry purposes, to do his bidding. And we have this one who says to his fellow, or one of his colleagues within the prophetic guild out of which he comes, 
please strike me. But the man refused to strike him. And he says, because you have not obeyed and you have not stricken me, if you will, you will be stricken down by a lion. And he has no sooner been departed than the lion meets him and strikes him down. Isn't that interesting? Please, he asked nicely, strike me. I'm not going to strike me. Okay, then you're soon going to know death by feline. This happened back in chapter 13 of First Kings. This is not the second time this has happened. We had another instance of that death by lion. You can read that this afternoon. But notice how terse this is. It's a picture of a call of one prophet to another, to a specific work. There's disobedience, and then there is death. It doesn't need to be any longer than that. It doesn't need to feature any more details than that. It just needs to be that what it is as it comes to us here in order to picture the consequences of ignoring what God has said, hence seeing the importance of what he has said and how it is that everything that comes from the mouth of God is to be heeded by his people. Now we could examine this in several ways. We could think that this is a shame that the man is being polite back to his co-worker, And we think this is rather harsh and so on, all of those things. But it shows, it distills down to the primary importance of what God says and doing that. Notice, when you think of all of the things that God discloses to his people, it's the voice of the Lord, verse 36, that is disobeyed. And very simply, the takeaway from this is that the prophet of God spells the presence of God. The worker of God brings the word of God. And it is important. The broader truth here is that to disregard what God says does not land one in a secure life-preserving place. but One ends up in an insecure death-executing place. Very simply, what God says is important. And if it is not followed, if it is not heeded, if it is not safeguarded, if it is not laid up in the heart and practiced in the life, there will ultimately be death. Now, I noted on a previous visit that we do not expect prophets to come to us today. We don't expect the man of God to show up at our door and to tell us what to do. We have God's word in its completion. We have thus saith the Lord. We have verily, verily I say unto you. We have the sum total of everything that God has disclosed about himself and about us in the 66 canonical books of what we know to be the Bible. And yet in our time, there seems to be an increasing desire to hear from God. Over about the last decade or so, there have been movements among non-charismatic circles that are increasingly focused upon hearing from God. You may hear this as you interact with people on a daily basis. Sometimes I do. Uh, Even those who are 
committed to like theology as we would be. The verbiage tends to veer more in the direction now of God told me this or God said this to me. And let me say, I'm sympathetic to those who are hurting and who long to know with precision what God would have them do or how they could go about acquiring for themselves increased comfort in the face of the challenges and trials and setbacks of life. But when I come to texts such as these, I find myself convicted all the more of the necessity of limiting ourselves to the wealth of knowledge and truth that we have in God's written word preserved for us through the ages, that even as I would not add anything to the work of Christ, lest I take away from it, I have no interest in an added word to the word of Christ, lest it be deemed somehow less important than it is being of utmost importance, of lone importance in every aspect of life, the final rule of faith and practice. So often we say to ourselves, well, there's nothing in the Bible to help me with this. Well, there may not be something as explicit as you'd like, but the truth of God comes to us such that when we dive in and when we embrace and when we feed upon it, when we in Jeremiah-like fashion find the words of the Lord and eat them, when we consume them in our souls, as the Spirit works, He will give to us that wisdom and that knowledge unto obedience that is necessary in any circumstances that He has decreed to bring us into. It's not strange to God. it's, It's no surprise to Him, for He is the one who has ordained everything through which we go, and He has set before us that which we need. And it's not being oversimplifying. It's not being omissive or neglectful to say that we have in the Scriptures that alone we need and in all of its completeness to address any aspect of our lives We are wanting for no good thing. John Jay, the second governor of New York and the first chief justice of the Supreme Court, was once asked by an infidel if he believed in Christ, and his response was, I do. And he said, and I thank God that I do. And not long before his death at the age of 83 in 1829, when urged to tell his children on what foundation he rested his hopes as death encroached. His reply was brief. They have the book. And the book that was before the children of John Jay is the book that we hold in our hands by the blessing of God. And it is sufficient for us in the face of death. That as we near to that time of expiration, that when we are asked, what is the foundation of our hopes? How is it that we know that even though we will die, yet shall we live? We have the book. And every answer that we can find to any question ultimately points us to the ultimate question of where is the hope for my soul? And we hear 
the greatest of prophets and the greatest of kings, saying, Come unto me, all ye who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That is the ultimate word that must be held and safeguarded, never to know the death that is the consequence of sin. What God says is so important, and perhaps this is best summed up by the Lord Jesus Himself in John 8, verse 51, where He says, Truly, truly, I say unto you, if anyone keeps My word, he will never see death. We have it, and we must heed it. That even as long ago, what and spoke to a co-worker politely and said, strike me, and he didn't. That was the voice of the Lord. And disobedient, he walked out unto death. May we, with the word before us, will never be seen by us. Now, secondly, I want us to note in verses 38 through 40, the way in which God works. Actually, uh, this emphasis begins in verse 38 and continues on the passage, and there is a sense in which, as you'll see, my final point really begins at verse 38. It's very difficult to divide, particularly the narrative of God's Word in these outlines for our purposes today, but I've done the best I could to draw a distinction between what I believe to be the main ideas uh, that are there. But the second thing I want to emphasize, beginning in verse 38, is the way in which God works. We might think of these divine methods to bring about His ends as very mysterious ones. You remember the hymnist uh, William Cooper wrote, God moves in a mysterious way His wonders to perform. We all know if we have walked with Christ for any length of time, there is no deciphering the economy of God. There's no way to figure out why what is happening is happening when it's happening. Why is this so messy? Why is this so strange? And again, the weirdness of it all comes back into play as we continue on through this particular account. We encounter here what may strike us at first as sovereign trickery. And that's okay if he is glorified and man receives something good. But we notice what happens here in summation. It's quite fascinating. The bruised prophet, having covered where his faithful fellow prophet, the second guy, had obeyed him and stricken him after the refusal of the first, is covered and he's waiting on the way for the passage of Ahab. And when Ahab comes by, he lays this story on him, this conundrum of him having been in battle and how it might go something like this. Uh, he's a servant, remember. Ahab at this juncture doesn't know that he's a prophet, so we can view him as a soldier in context, and it would go something like this. An Israelite soldier has another Israelite soldier come to him, and he's bringing an Aramean or a Damascan soldier to him to be guarded, and it's his life for the captured soldiers. He's saying, in essence, don't let this guy go. Because if you do, it will be your life for his, unless you can cough up a talent of silver, which was about 3,000 shekels, and no Israelite soldier had anywhere near that. So that basically was communicated to make it clear it will be impossible for you to escape death. Now again, strange, rather odd, but very concise, very to the point 
And the reason for that is the effort of God as the instrument of God, wants to be sure that when he lays all of this on Ahab, Ahab's going to clearly understand it. And in the concision, in the terseness, particularly in verse 40b, we almost find humor. So shall your judgment be, do yourself, you yourself have decided. It's so obvious to him, it's almost funny, particularly in light of what the man had previously said. As your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. He didn't give any details about Aaron running or the things. He said, I was just about this and about that, what that literally means. And suddenly, the guy uh, I had been given as a captor vanished. Why so short? Again, because all... All that is needed to wake Ahab up in the providence of God is that, and we know that the aim, the objective is obtained and is reached when we hear again those words, so shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. Why one is so obvious, you ought to get it off. It's as if that is what Ahab is saying to the quote-unquote servant. And then with this, of course, comes the pronouncement that I'll get to in a moment. But this rings a bell with us, does it not? Uh, We think about Nathan going to David in 2 Samuel 12. King David's faithful advisor, Nathan, had come to him in the aftermath of his adultery and his arrangement of the murder of her husband, and he floats this hypothetical of a rich man stealing a poor man's lamb to feed a traveler instead of giving him one of his own. This man took from another who didn't have as much as he did to feed the journeyman, and as soon as David hears this, his anger was kindled, and he tells Nathan, this man deserves to die and restore, to have his lamb restored fourfold because of this pitilessness and this harsh unbelievably sinful act. And what do we read in verse 7 of 2 Samuel 12? You are the man. The Lord has spoken, and Nathan asks David on behalf of God in verse 9 in 2 Samuel, Why have you, what, despised the Word of God? You see, those who have yet to believe spurn it. And those who have believed so often turn away from it. But it's a different outcome. David is convicted, and and David longs to be forgiven by God. And he pours out in that great penitential psalm, Psalm 50, his heart, his innermost being, and he longs to be restored to God. But what I want us to focus upon here is the way in which he works and what that for all with whom God has to do in every episode of any life, whether recorded in Scripture or, or in our own personal lives, God works such as everything unfolds that He has decreed that there can be hardening of the heart. But yes, but there can also be a softening and there can be repentance. And therefore, we need to be thankful and marvel at these kind of divine sting operations. 
Why does God have to be so sneaky about things and set up through these kind of parable-like circumstances that are actually real ones in real time that people are going through? Why does He do that? Well, I don't know why He does it, but what I observe in Scripture is that the outcomes are sometimes bad, but they're sometimes good. They're sometimes dishonoring to God, but sometimes they're honoring to Him. And therefore, as He brings those things to pass, we must anticipate that even though there's not repentance necessarily in some instances, there could have been. And we need to see the productions of gods that are sneaky and clever and hidden and almost cinematic. They're, they're two-pronged. That out of those occurrences can come hardening unto death, but can also come repentance unto life. There's an exposure of what is bad and disturbing and heartbreaking, but there can be, by His grace, resulting what is good and restoring and what is loving and merciful and binding up of wounds and reunification can happen and reconciliation, and that's what we need to look for. We need not judge these by saying that this was something that really wasn't fair or this was something that was hard, but this is something out of which good things can and have occurred. I remember about 20 years ago now for the first time, I heard it on KISFM, KISS FM 102.7 in Los Angeles, Ryan Seacrest, who still is one of the hosts on the morning show on that station. Uh, his co-hostess at the time was a woman named Ellen Kay, and they used to do something that I thought at first was rather devious. Uh, they would, people call in who were suspect of their spouses or significant others cheating on them. Uh, this segment was called Ryan's Roses. Uh, and they would talk to the person. And then they would have someone on their staff call the person in question and pose as an employee at a florist. And then ask them where they wanted flowers to be sent. And sometimes they responded with the right name, and sometimes they didn't. And unfortunately the spouse or the significant other was on the line listening to all of this and they were outed on live radio. And Mr. Seacrest wound up being a mediator of sorts for the remainder of the segment. Now, when I first heard that, dozens of questions went through my mind from the legalities to the simple lack of sensitivity and so on. But I see from that, regardless of the motives or why it happened, that there was sin revealed and it was hard and it was difficult and it was painful. But there was also, in some instances, the opportunity for reconciliation and, if nothing else, freedom from what is bad in order to get on with life unto liberty of conscience and being able to live free of a situation that had bound them of which they were not even aware. And there is a sense in which 
In these episodes, as with Ahab in 1 Kings 20 or David in 2 Samuel 12, that's what's happening. And you wonder why, and you think to yourself, oh, I wouldn't have done that. Well, we're not God. God does things for His honor to out-sin and to bring mercy. So the anticipation ought to be, as we move through life and as these strange things happen, that no, yes, God is bringing judgment, but He's also longing to see People repent and come to Him. Turn back to Me with all of your heart. Turn, Joel says, that in the face of these accounts, the outcome might be as it was for Dr. Adam Clark. The Cotton Mather descendant Frank Etheridge told the story of Dr. Adam Clark who when he was a boy had defied and disobeyed the instruction of his mother and having made gestures of undervaluing her authority, watched her take up the Scriptures and turn to Proverbs 30, 17 and read it to the recalcitrant child. And that verse states, The eye that mocketh at his father and despiseth to obey his mother, the ravens of the valley shall pick it out and the young eagle shall eat it. And the young lad, hearing this, ran outside, highly disturbed, and wouldn't you know, before long, in the distance, there was the coarse croak of a raven that flew nearby. And as he perceived this almost ominous bird to be that of which the Bible had spoken, he clapped his hands loudly, and it flew away. But as it flew away, Clark ran back into the house, heartily sorrowful toward his mother, that he might escape impending vengeance. The point is, these bizarre stories, they sometimes work in the direction of grace. And that spells great hope for you and for me. Matthew Henry says of Ahab here, he's not truly repentant or seeking to undo what he had done amiss but he is rather enraged at the prophet and he exasperated, was exasperated against God. I take that to mean that Professor Henry, as he mentions repentance and the fact that Ahab was not, means that he understands that he could have been. Even as Adam could have been. As Dr. John Currid, the Old Testament scholar, points out, one of the reasons that God calls out to Adam as he's moving about in the, in the day is to grant to the man some sense of an opportunity and an occasion to come forth and yet now repent, Joel says. Return to me with the whole of your heart in fasting and in weeping and in mourning. Yes, that can happen. And there is a sense in which our God, the only one whom can induce repentance, as He sets these scenarios out, presents Himself as a God who waits upon His people to come back because He longs for His people to return. But then finally, we have the consequence by which God fulfills. Ahab will be judged. 
with his final defeat coming in a third battle with Syria. But the pronouncement is very clear here in the 42nd verse. The message of the Lord via the prophet is, Because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, your life shall be for his and your people for his people. God's preceptive will was to remove the enemies of Israel consisting of the Syrians in toto. And 127,000 of them had already gone down. That was a wipeout. But the king is still around. He'll eventually get his, but it was God's intent that he be destroyed, and he was not. And therefore, the disobedience of Ahab become the lives of himself and his people are the consequence of that. And it is in consequences that we see how it is that God is faithful and fulfills His covenant obligations. To the consequence of sin, there is the covenant fulfillment of God being faithful in His promises to the faithless. In the consequence of the obedience of Christ, there is God's faithfulness to fulfill His covenant promise to all who trust in Christ, that He will be faithful even unto the end. And they will be openly acknowledged and acquitted before Him in the day of judgment. So we have a particular instance here of God's pronouncement of what is just in His eyes. But that showcases for us how it is that any consequence in the either-or before death of living eternally or dying eternally The consequence of disobedience is death. The consequence of obedience is life. And the good news is it's not your obedience or mine ultimately, but the obedience of the greatest of prophets. The obedience of the one who is not only, we might refer to as the greater Ahab, but the much greater Ahab, the one who is righteous altogether. God in the flesh. And because Ahab has favored political expediency over divine justice, it has cost him and it has cost his people. And he goes home vexed and sullen. Vexed means annoyed. Sullen here means dark or somber. He goes back to his abode in Samaria and he's not just downcast and and this is not just a situation that is dark, but it is one in which there is in the heart of Ahab resentment toward God. It's interesting how this term vexed is usually in Scripture connected uh, to the idea of, of judgment. Uh, vexing and the particular outcome of the justice being meted out upon one. Um, It's connected specifically, as a matter of fact, to the gnashing of teeth, gnashing and vexing. We see those two things joined in Psalm 112.10 of the accounts in the Gospels. For example, Matthew 8.12, where those who are disobedient will be cast into darkness and there will be weeping or literally wailing and the gnashing of teeth 
I love what R.C. Sproul did with that once. There's the wailing and the weeping out of fear and pain. But there are those who will yet in eternity be angry and the gnashing, the grinding of the teeth. That concept is always connected to, to vexation, vexing. So Ahab has gone away and there has not been repentance in his heart. God has been faithful to what he had stated and laid out for Ahab in his house, and he will through to the end of his life. But let us not forget that there is also the other consequence that leads to life, the consequence of the obedience of Christ for his people. Think about this. Here's a prophet who reveals himself to Ahab. It's time to say, Aha, you're busted, you're caught. You're outed. He sees that mark. He bears a bruise near an eye as the eye patch comes off or as the, the particular garment or whatever it was that was over the eye covering. He reveals that and as Ahab recognizes him, he sees a bruise, a mark of obedience of one. The second prophet in the guild who had done what the first prophet had asked him to do. And as we come to this table, we meet with one, the greatest of prophets, who, who, who bears a bruise, who, who bears an injury that is the result of not another's obedience, but of his. Strike me. And the one who strikes him is the one who sent him. And then Ahab, the disobedient one, who brings upon himself judgment for Himself and the people, the far greater Ahab is the one who is obedient and brings judgment upon himself, yes. But not that his people may have their lives be for that of the enemy, but rather that they may live. That is good news. And it is that grace and mercy that we must apprehend turn to Him in belief, in hatred of our sins, and commitment to following Him, come what may in this life. Because that is what it means to keep the word of the Lord and to never see death. And we must come in gratefulness because we're no better than Ben-Hadad. We're certainly no better than Ahab. But we have been among those whom God in Christ is pleased to show His mercy when Pompey's adherents deserted him and went over to Caesar, or when they were taken prisoner and brought to Caesar, Caesar loaded them with favors and honors and declared that it was his highest pleasure to save his enemies who had fought against him. That's what we meet at this table. His highest pleasure to reserve from among all those who had fought against him, some as his own. That's the good news. And I would hope that that would render us able only to say that it is all of Christ and He is our hope and we serve Him because He has shown to us the ultimate favor because we too fought against Him. But He was pleased to take those of us, children of hell, adherents of the enemy, and make us His own. 
want to close with a quote from the Puritan David Clarkson when reflecting upon his own salvation and the reality of the need to escape the wrath of God due to men for their sins, said this, To those that are delivered from the curse, you whom Christ has redeemed from everlasting wrath, you whom he has saved from going down into the pit, You whom he released from these everlasting burnings, oh, praise and admire and adore and rejoice in the one who redeems you. If the curse of the law have stung your consciences, how sweet, how endearing will these two expressions be. How will they draw your affections to Christ? Oh, was he content to bear the curse rather than I should bear it, to be cursed that I might inherit the blessing, to lie under the wrath of God rather than it should sink me into hell? Was he content to die that he might save my life and to drink up the dregs of divine vengeance that I might not taste of the second death? Oh, love the Lord and bless the Lord, oh, my soul. For the written word is before us. And now the unspoken word is before us. May God operate in our hearts. And may we come to Him. May we go back home to Him as the one sorry for our misdoings, knowing that He will grant us favor knowing that He loves to be merciful and to be kind, knowing that if we are heartily sorry toward this One against whom we have rebelled, rebelled, that He will grant that we escape impending vengeance. May we pray. Lord, as we come to sup with You, as we long in our hearts to be freed from that which besets us and separates from You, we ask that You meet with us and that You work in us hearts that are yet changed, that we yet again would come even today knowing that far and wide to any who call upon Your name, You are pleased to have mercy and to abundantly pardon. And so make us ready that as we come to You and as we eat and drink, that we may do so worthily. For Jesus' sake, in whose name we do pray. Amen.